If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24, Luke 24. If you didn't bring a Bible today, there are some uh, black hardback Bibles uh, in one of the chairs in front of you. Should be one close to you. Should be on page 885 is what we're going to be on today. Um, it's good to be able to uh, to preach the word to you this morning. Uh, many of you will ask me at times when Corey preaches and he mentions your name and says something about you when he's preaching, uh, typically about how I can't end a sermon very well. You know, does that get in your head? And of course, I tell him, I say, no, that doesn't get in my head. But I'll tell you what happened about a month ago. I had a dream. I had a dream one night. I was preaching from the second row, right where we normally sit, second row. And Corey was, uh, he was sitting in the same row, right about where, where Peter is, right over here. And, uh, and I'm preaching and I'm getting it, a- I'm getting after it. I mean, I'm, it's, it's going really well. And, uh, and about, about, it just felt like a long time into my sermon. I looked down at the row, at the chairs in front of me on the first row and I noticed there's a lot of communion supplies. The Lord's Supper, the trays and everything were out there. And uh, about this time, Corey has stood up and he is, uh, he's walking over my, my kids, uh, kind of coming over and he, he whispers to me, he says, uh, hey, don't forget we have the Lord's Supper today. And, uh, and I said, oh, that's right. And I, so I turned it and I apologized to, to, uh, to you all. And I said, uh, it just struck me that we have the Lord's Supper today and I haven't even gotten to any of my points. So I think Corey's looking out for me, looking out for you guys. And uh, I don't have a I don't have a bad thing to say about Corey. We're so blessed to have Corey preach to us. Uh, so hot coals in the lap, Corey. Uh, so we uh, yeah, it is. a It's a privilege to be able to, to, to preach. It's also a privilege to be able to to, uh, to serve with these brothers uh, together. And uh, so we're going to be in Luke 24. Let me start off by just saying this. I cannot hit a curveball. I could not hit a curveball uh, to save my life. I remember when I was in the eighth grade, which was about the time I stopped playing baseball. But I was on this team and it was a little more serious. And it was coached by a coach who uh, who actually he probably thought he should have still been in the majors. He, he did have that like he played professional baseball and all that kind of stuff. I was probably a nightmare on his team because he took it way too seriously. And so uh, he prided himself on being able to steal the signs of the other coach. When the other coach, when the other team was in the field and they were pitching, and uh, and so the coach, if you're not familiar, would give the catcher the sign to give to the pitcher to tell the pitcher what sign is going to or what pitch was going to come. And so one inning before uh, before we got it to bat, he said, "Hey guys, I know the signs. I'm going to tell you the signs." He tells us the signs, and so the one I was mainly concerned about was the curveball. And so he told me which sign was the curveball, and. Uh, and so I get up to bat, and there are a couple guys on base. I'm pretty sure there were two outs. And uh, I went down 0-2, no balls, two strikes. And I look over, and he gives the curveball sign. So um, curveball, the wind-up, the pitch, the curveball, the swing, the strikeout. I go back to the dugout, and it had to, it had to be the third out because he was right on me, and he said... He said, I told you it was going to be a curveball. And I said, uh, yeah, that's why I couldn't hit it. It curved. So the uh, 
I was actually reading uh, on this text uh, this week, and, and there's a, a guy named Daryl Bach that said that uh, the text here is is uh, the son Jesus, the, the the Son of God, has been crucified, and people couldn't really make sense of everything that had happened. The story we're going to walk through this morning appears that God has thrown a curveball to His own people. But then, as Daryl Bach says. God didn't throw humanity a curveball. He threw death, sin, and Satan a curveball. And to which I would add, they couldn't hit it. And today's story, we read, shows us the signs had always been there for God's people. But when the pitch came, they whiffed. They missed it completely. So look at Luke 24. We're going to read verses 13 through 53. I originally was going to stop at verse 35, but uh, but I, I feel like it's uh, relevant and, and really fits with the rest of the, the, the chapter. So if you'll bear with me, it's a it's a, a bit of, of reading here. Uh, but I want us to see in the text this morning that everything revolves revolves around Jesus. Jesus is a central figure of not only our text today, but a central figure in all of life and all of reality. He's the central figure of the scriptures. And so read with me Luke 24 verses 13 and we're going to go all the way to the end. It says that very day is the very day that Jesus resurrected that very day. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations begin beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What a wonderful text. The text speaks for itself. There's so much in this text and we don't have time to, to, to delineate everything in this and unpack everything. But what I want to do, I want, I'm going to title this, yeah, the sermon is Apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus. And the first point I want us to see is that apart from Jesus, we have no hope of making sense of life. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope of making sense of life. Consider where this fledgling group of disciples were. They were emotionally spent. They were downcast, distressed, troubled. They'd lost all hope. And they were reeling from the last 72 hours. And the community of disciples really appears to be unraveling. They had just dismissed the women's accounts at the empty tomb. They said that their tale, it just seemed like an idle tale. It says they didn't believe them. And now this departure of the two disciples appears to imply that the disciples, the community of those that were following Jesus, is beginning to unravel. They're beginning to scatter. But verse 14 says this, it says, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. A different translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually gets to what I think the root is, of, is happening. It says they were talking and it says they were actually arguing on the way while they're on the road to Emmaus. Why would they argue? The reality is, if anything is worth arguing, it's this. If anything is worth trying to figure out, what's the meaning of what just happened? It's this. If you don't get the interpretation of what happened at the cross and in that tomb, right? If you don't get that right, you get everything in life wrong. They could not understand anything that the Lord was doing if they didn't know what he was doing on the cross. And what, what it meant that he had resurrected from the dead, that he wasn't in the tomb. It was worth arguing about. And the text says that when Jesus asked them what they were discussing, what their discussion was about, they were so discouraged. Did you see it? It says that they, they stood still. They were walking and Jesus says, what are you, what are you arguing about? What are you talking about? And they stopped. 
They stood still. This is sadness. This is a result. If you do not believe that the cross of Christ has any effect on your life and your death. They were looking sad. Why? Because they didn't know what the crucifixion of Jesus really meant. I mean, the word sad is easy for us to understand, but it's also easy for us to underestimate what they were feeling. The author intends for us to be a part. We're told that one of their names is Cleopas. We don't know the other one. And some have mentioned that maybe the intention is for us to imagine that we're there with Cleopas walking to Emmaus. They thought they were going to be a part of a revolution. Their team was strong, but they all fell away. Their leader had been executed. It appeared that their leader was cursed by God and everything came horribly tumbling down. But the reality is that they did not know what Jesus was doing on the cross. And the reality is for every person in life that unless you know what Jesus is doing, you have no idea what you are doing. Luke points out in his gospel that there's so much misunderstanding about Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles. People didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand. There was misunderstandings about him at his trial, during his death and during his resurrection. There was so much misunderstanding. And just one chapter earlier, we read these incredible words from the cross. Remember this? We, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And it would seem to any outside observer that they knew exactly what they were doing to Jesus. But the great high priest Caiaphas, little did he know that he voted to kill God. He voted to sacrifice the Lamb of God. The religious leaders misunderstood everything about God's heart and his plan for the world. The Pharisees did not know what they were doing. They thought Jesus was a false prophet twisting the scriptures. So they voted to kill him. The Pharisees didn't know what they were doing. The Sadducees didn't know what they were doing. They thought they were protecting the law by killing the lawbreaker, they thought. They didn't know he was actually upholding the law and bringing the law to its inherent end to to fully embrace broken human beings. They didn't know that they voted to crucify the author of the law. They did not know what they were doing. No one understood what Jesus was doing. No one knew that that awful event was actually divine compassion. No one knew that this was the divine plan that had been been set in place since the creation of the world. And the followers of Jesus, those that were closest to him, misunderstood God's plan and his hope for the world. Everyone misunderstood. No one knew that when Jesus was dying on the cross, that the wrath of God was being poured out for their sins. No one knew. The disciples didn't know that their Lord had much bigger plans that they could never have possibly conceived. That's why the words of Jesus at the cross are so piercing but so necessary. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's why no one could possibly comprehend the miraculous that was happening on that Sunday morning. No one could figure it out. No one could. The two on the road to Emmaus needed to know what Jesus was doing on the cross. And they needed to know the meaning of the tomb, of the empty tomb. Everyone needs to know. The point in all this is that you cannot possibly know what God is doing in the world if you do not know what Jesus is doing. 
If you have no understanding of what happened at the cross, you'll have no way to possibly make, possibly make sense of what's happening in this world. If you don't know that Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of mankind, for your sins, that it was your punishment that he was taking, dying in your place as your substitute, and that he rose from the dead showing that God had accepted his sacrifice on your behalf, then you will walk through life never treasuring Jesus. You'll have a different treasure than Jesus. You'll miss the whole point of your life and you'll spend your money on your own missions in life and you'll think that your eternity is up to you doing enough things, enough good in this world to make God have to welcome you in to heaven. You cannot possibly know what God is doing in the world if you don't know what Jesus is doing. And find comfort in this. Jesus knows this. That's why in our darkness, our confusion, our despondency, our doubts, our depression, Jesus doesn't push away from us in that. He actually draws near. Do you see it? He knows the doubts that you have. He knows the fears that you have. And he's not threatened by them. He's not put off by you. He's actually drawn to you like your own child when they're doing something. You know, they don't know what they're doing. They're getting themselves in trouble. You're drawn to them to bring them in. The text in verse 15, Luke is actually emphatic. He says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Find comfort in that. Luke actually says it in verse 36 as well. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Have you ever been so stressed out that the slightest disagreement or even facial expression that someone gives you can just set you off? Perhaps it's a time of deep distress, anxiety, darkness. You may have found that Some of your biggest fights as a married couple were in times of great anxiety that you had or great worry. Do you know that Jesus is not repelled by you in that moment? You know what? He wants to draw you in. He's drawing near. And you think, no way, no, no one would want to be near me in those moments. Not true. Jesus does. Why? Why? Because if you don't know what Jesus is doing, you won't know what you're doing. And he knows that his nearness to you is exactly what you need. That's what you need the most. So apart from Jesus, I want us to see that we have no hope of making sense of life. Number two, apart from Jesus opening our eyes to the scriptures, we have no hope of making sense of the Bible. Can you see in the text that we need God to open our eyes? Without the Son of God standing over our shoulder to help us interpret life and His Word, we'll be hopeless to come up with a proper understanding. Had you been there that day, how would you have interpreted the the crucifixion of the three men on the cross? On that hillside. How would you have interpreted that? If you were the sons of Simon of Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus were told he was given the cross. He had to carry it. If if you were the sons of 
Simon of Cyrene, how would you have interpreted what was happening before your own eyes? If you were friends with the person who walked into the tomb and found that it was empty, how would you interpret that? That's what they're talking about here. If Jesus himself were to walk up to you and start talking to you, how would you interpret what was happening? The reality is that unless God himself opens your eyes and opens your heart, you will woefully misunderstand it. All of it. Just like these disciples did. Just like everyone did. They needed help to recognize Jesus' true identity and receive him as Lord. You can see that even though Jesus walked up to them and started talking to them, they still didn't know who he was. Even though it says Jesus himself drew near and went with them, they couldn't recognize who this man was. The phrase they were kept from recognizing him means someone or something was preventing them from grasping who it was that was walking with them. We actually learn in Luke 10 verses one, uh, 21 and 22, Jesus actually says, it says in that same or it says in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So it seems here that God is the one at this point who's preventing the disciples from initially understanding who Jesus is. Only until the risen Lord himself removes their blinders. So their problem to everyone reading the story. I don't know how you'd feel if you were in heaven right now and you're the two that were on the road to Emmaus. We all get to see. We all know they have no clue who this guy is. So the problem is they didn't know who it was that they were talking to. But notice Jesus' approach to revealing himself to them. He says this. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice the heart of the rebuke. Jesus' rebuke to them is key. He doesn't refer to the evidence of the empty tomb that they're not believing or the, the angelic visitations that were reported and they dismissed them. They were most likely discussing those things. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that. He doesn't even refer back to the predictions that he himself made that this was actually going to happen. Instead, he turns them to the scriptures. And he does something more profound than just give them a Bible lesson or a Bible study with them on the road. Sometimes people paint this story as that. Here he interprets for them. It's more than just explaining. He interprets the scriptures in light of his story. He points out that he is the fulfillment of their scriptures. Their scriptures make sense of Jesus, but Jesus also makes sense of their scriptures. One commentator says this, he says, what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the scriptures. Yet the scriptures themselves can only be understood in light of what has happened with Jesus. These two are mutually informing. 
Notice that Jesus does not overwhelm them with some miraculous, incredible spectacle. You might think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he, he, people see this, he's, he's this incredible light. He's, it's not that. Right? He doesn't give this incredible revelation of himself that forces faith on them. He actually instead interprets the scriptures for them. They need to hear the word of God to clear up the confusion in their own words. I believe that's why Jesus did not immediately show them who he was. Because he wanted their confidence to be grounded for life in God's written word. Unless we have Jesus opening our eyes to the scripture, we have no hope of making sense of the Bible. Notice in the resurrection account in Luke that the angel says in verse 6 of chapter 24, notice what the angel points out. He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you? Remember how he told you? In verse 8, we're told that the women remembered his words. The angels did not focus only on the fact that the tomb was empty. Though they pointed that out, they announced that the tomb was empty. But the focus here is belief in the words of the Lord Jesus, trusting his promise that he would be raised from the dead. And the lesson for us is clear. Our hope and our confidence is based on the word of God as it is found in the scriptures. And that's the direction the angels pointed the women and the disciples. It's the direction that Jesus actually pointed these two on the road to Emmaus. Also notice what didn't happen for them. Jesus walked them through the word. And later they reflected that their hearts burned within them as, as he did so. But they still didn't know who he was. That word opened is used three times. Verse 31 Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This reveals to us that we not only need revelation from God, but we also need the ability to understand it, to receive it. We need God to speak to us, but we need to be able to understand it too. And it's this revelation from Jesus which has caused their hearts to burn within. Verse 32. And then verses 30 and 31 says their eyes were opened to see that it was Jesus through the breaking of the bread. Breaking of bread revealed the Savior. Why did it happen this way? Now, perhaps it was because Jesus wanted them to, to make the very real connection between his broken body and the broken bread. Perhaps some believe that uh, they, they recognized Jesus when he lifted his hands and broke the bread. They'd recognize the scars on his hands or on his wrists, and they knew immediately who they were talking to. I love that. Some say that faith is kindled over broken bread, sharing a meal together, and that's characteristic of the early church in Acts, as we read, what it must have been like to sit at that dinner table with Jesus. I think all of those seem to be true, a mixture of all those things. But Luke was specific in this moment. He says how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In that very moment, he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and he vanished. It's a critical moment in the text. 
There's not total agreement as to what the meaning of this really is. Some say it likely mirrors the, uh, mirrors the, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, and immediately afterwards, he just, it was uh, two loaves of bread and some fish. And he immediately, that, uh, afterwards, Peter confesses that he is the Christ. And it's at that moment that Peter recognized who he is. It's more likely, however, that the breaking of the bread refers to the sharing of a meal that culminates in the Lord's Supper. It fits well with the flow that we see in the pattern of Acts, in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. But at the Last Supper, if you remember, at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and he held it before them and he broke it. And he explained to his disciples, this right here is a picture of what's about to happen to my body. It's going to be broken for you, given for the sake of believers, declaring that believers were going to continue to break bread together in this way to remember the Lord's self-giving in his death. So think about it. Think about it. Jesus had just walked them through the fact that the Messiah in verse 26 must suffer these things and enter into his glory. A suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior. And now at the breaking of the bread, we're told that the disciples' eyes were opened. I believe a few things happened here. That when Jesus broke the bread, they saw his hands and his wrists. And two, they now easily connected those scars of the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah who went to the cross 72 hours early, earlier because of what Jesus had just laid out for them in the scriptures. It was not Christ's teaching about himself as the fulfillment of the scriptures that actually astonished the disciples. Even though they admitted their hearts were burning within him while he spoke, it was his presence with them. But they didn't recognize his presence in the scripture teaching. They recognized it in the breaking of the bread. I think it's a mixture of all of these things. Jesus showing them how he fulfilled all of the scriptures. And then seeing his hands. It'd be easy. Let's find comfort in this. We'll move on after this. Find comfort in this. That it'd be easy to get caught up in the the sting of the words. When he said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Jesus came up and he walked with them. Not to tell them that he's tired of dealing with their unbelief. No, he was wooing them to himself by showing him, him, them himself in the scriptures and proving that he was, in fact, everything that they had hoped for, everything that they had been longing for. Verse 21, so we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. He was doing much, much more than that. And we need Jesus to reveal more of himself to us in the scriptures Because apart from him opening our eyes to the scriptures, we have no hope of making sense of the Bible. Your Bible reading plan is not, if you're on one, it's not just a box to check. It's inviting the Lord Jesus to show us more of himself. We must long for Jesus to open his word and to show himself to us. This is actually informative on how we should pray when we come to the word. Lord, show me who Jesus is. Show me more of Christ. Help me to appreciate more of what Christ has done for me through this text. God is overjoyed to hear prayers like that. Matt Smithers exhorts us. He says this. He says, the greatest story of all time 
the Bible. It's the only story where the central character loves us back. I love that. So apart from Jesus opening our eyes to the scriptures, we have no hope of making sense of the Bible. The third thing. Apart from Jesus, our religious activity will be lifeless and cold. I hope you can see this in the text. The disciples were about to pack it in and call it a day. While the religious people were actually having a party. Religious people were rejoicing. Perhaps a little bit afraid and trying to figure out what the the split veil meant. But certainly they were happy. It's possible to be winning in religion, to go through a lifetime of church activities and still go to hell. If we do not find ourselves in the story of Jesus, then our religion is lifeless. What do I mean by that? If you can't see that your sin put Jesus on the cross, then you will not join him and the saints in heaven. So it matters, actually. It matters. It matters that we point one another to Jesus as often as we can. So why can't we as a church maybe say things that are true about Scripture without showing how it fits together with Christ? Dr. Russell Moore helpfully explains it this way. He says this. He says, all reality is being summed up in Christ and showing believers how to find themselves in the story of Jesus. Because apart from Christ, there are no promises of God. In in his temptation of Jesus, Satan quotes scripture and he doesn't misquote the promises. God wants his children to eat bread, not starve before stones. God will protect his anointed one with the angels of heaven. God will give his Messiah all the kingdoms of the earth. All this is true. What is satanic about all of this, though, is that Satan wanted our Lord to grasp these things apart from the cross and the empty tomb. These promises could not be abstracted from the gospel. Listen to this. And the people, Russell Moore goes on to say, the people in the pews can go to hell clinging to Bible verses abstracted from Jesus. The story before us that we read today shows us that the aim of the scriptures is not to make us good people. The aim of the scriptures is to make us worshipers of Jesus. Notice that Jesus says that all the scriptures point to him. So if that's true, if it's all about Jesus, wouldn't it follow that we should really want to know what the Bible is actually saying? And it's possible to be a people that are so excited about the scriptures, yet at the same time crucify the very one that wrote them. That's what the story of the Pharisees is. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus tells very good, very moral, incredible Bible teachers, upright church goers. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then he goes on to tell them that Moses was actually writing about him and it was not received well. The reality is the aim of the scriptures is not to make us good people. It's to make us adore Jesus. It's to make us worshipers of Jesus. So be careful how you identify yourself or us, how we identify ourselves as a church. That we are a church that loves God's word. We pray that that is so. 
But do we stop there? One thing I love about our church is that we preach through the word. We preach through books of the Bible. And I encourage other Christians to find a church that does that. And that's what we do here. But if we're not a church that has an ever-increasing love for Jesus, when we look at the scriptures, then we're only becoming moralists. We're becoming legalists. We're becoming potentially like the Pharisees, the religious leaders that put Jesus on the cross. The aim of the scriptures is not to make us good people, but it's to make us worshipers of Jesus. You see, Jesus is what the Bible is all about. He's the promised seed that crushed the head of the serpent. He's the true and better Adam that trusted his father. He is the better Abel who offered the perfect sacrifice. He is the true ark that God shuts us inside of so that we're shielded from his wrath. It was about Jesus. He fulfilled all the demands of the law for us. He's the true and better Isaac. He's the better Moses who leads us through the wilderness. He's the better Israel who was faithful to God in the wilderness. Jesus is the true Lamb of God that was slain once for all with no other need for any other sacrifice. He is the good shepherd that will not abandon the sheep. He is the true and better suffering psalmist who's trusting in God's deliverance. He is the greater and final exodus delivering us ultimately into the new heaven and the new earth. He is the true and better Job, the true and better David that slays all of our enemies and welcomes us like he welcomed Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, and promised him that he would always have a place at his table. He's the true and better prophet Jonah, who by throwing himself into the chaos of God's wrath has satisfied all the storms that would threaten to undo us. He's the true and better prophet Jonah. He is the true and better staff of Moses that was lifted up for suffering sinners who receive mercy and healing from him. He's the true and better tabernacle. He's the true and better. He is the true bread in the wilderness. And he's not only our past, but he's our future. He's making all things new. He is the redeemer and the restorer. He will have a multi-ethnic bride one day and he will finish making all things new. Do not our hearts burn when we think about Jesus. And may he continue to open the scriptures to us. And may he open us as well to the scriptures. Until the day that he returns and he turns our foolish, slow hearts into perfect, loving hearts. And chances are, when you start to feel stale spiritually, you start to feel lifeless, you start to feel cold, you start to feel bored with your spiritual life. It's because you've stopped seeking Jesus. You've stopped reading his word and looking for Christ in his word, the author He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. So apart from Jesus, our religious activity will be lifeless and cold. And lastly, apart from Jesus, we'd be misguided in all of our quests in life. Verses 47 and 48. Well, Jesus in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said, and thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Don't miss that this isn't just good news for us. It's not just good news that the empty, that the tomb is empty. 
This is a new identity for us. We are witnesses. We are messengers. He declares, you are witnesses of these things. Acts 1.8, the risen Lord tells his followers, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, he doesn't emphasize their activity of bearing witness, but their identity is witnesses. They're not just spectators telling a great story. They, they are more like witnesses in court who testify of what they've seen. We must speak truthfully about what's happened in our own lives and how Jesus has saved us. One of my favorite parts about the membership process is being able to have a, a conversation with the, the members who are being welcomed into the church and hearing their story. Hearing their story about how they were living for themselves and Christ radically changed their life. And all they are doing is just telling what happened. And how God opened their eyes to see the reality of Jesus in the scriptures. I love it that I get to hear stories of how God gave someone a new affection for people that they used to not like. That God's given them these affections. See, we must speak truthfully about what's happened in our own lives and how Jesus has saved us. Do you see what the two disciples did immediately when they realized the full gravity of all that had taken place? Verse 33, they rose that same hour and they returned. This is probably in the evening. And they're going back a seven mile journey. Hearts burning, but they're going. Proclaiming the supernatural, proclaiming grace. Can you imagine them bursting through those doors? Faces aglow, hearts burning. Everything had changed for them. Though in reality, the scriptures, I mean, nothing has really changed. It was the plan from all eternity past. Jesus was not dead and he was not just this itinerant preacher who had just rose from the dead. He was the Lord of the scriptures. They just learned he was the Lord of the universe. He was the great I am that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He was the good shepherd. He was the sacrificial lamb for them. He was the king of all kings who could not be conquered by all of hell and Satan. There was such reversal of emotions that took place here. From melancholy, hopes dashed, extinguished, to bursting through the doors with joy and telling them, telling them all that no, their hopes had not been snuffed out. But here too is the twist in the story. Peter has already seen Jesus. Jesus is present among them everywhere. They were met by disciples who were aglow as well. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So they burst into the room. They're excited. Jesus just spent most of his day with them walking on the road. But guess what? Jesus spent time with Simon as well. How did he do that? Oh, it's dawning on them. He can be with any of us at any time. Jesus is really among them, no matter where they are. Not only did Jesus prove his resurrection and victory on the road to Emmaus, but he did it in Jerusalem too. The excitement is so great that one report is interrupted by another report. In verse 40 and 41, says that Jesus appeared to them shortly after they burst through the doors, and he showed them his hands and his feet. And listen to how their outlook changed. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they, they, they couldn't believe it. 
Matter of fact, it's interesting that right after that, Jesus has opened the scriptures to him again. And just he opened the scriptures to him and showed him how he was the fulfillment of everything that they had been longing for, everything they've been reading about. But that phrase, they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I think we're to see that they could not, they just couldn't believe it. They'd gone from their worst day to their greatest day. Listen to how David Mathis helps us understand this. Helps us see that apart from Jesus, we would be misguided in all of our quests for life. See, they had been given this new identity. They are now They are now messengers. They are witnesses. David Mathis says this. He says, Our restless souls will not find eternal and ever-increasing rest and joy in a Christless new earth, no matter how stunning it might be. Streets of gold, reunions with loved ones, and sinless living may thrill us at first, but they will not ultimately satisfy. Not for eternity. Not on their own. We were made for Jesus. He is at the center of true life now, and he will be forever. If there is no living Christ, there is no final satisfying eternity. But he is alive indeed to know and enjoy forever. You see how this changes your identity as a neighbor on your street or in your apartments? How this changes your identity? You're now a witness to what you have seen and heard in Jesus. The job that you have, it's not accidental. God has given you this job. It's by his design. Kids, when you're on a sports team, God has put you on that sports team as a witness to the grace of God. Let them see Jesus in you. You should play for the glory of God and love others like Jesus on your team. And when the time comes, share with them that they too can be forgiven of their sins. See, it's all been rigged. So that you and I can declare what we have seen and heard and experienced with the risen Lord Jesus. To close, the question I think we should ask is, do you really believe this? Do you believe this is true, that the Lord really is risen from the dead? Or do you believe that this is more of an idle tale, like the disciples? Like they thought of the women's testimony. I can tell you that based on national attendance on Easter Sunday and then the week following Easter Sunday, that there is a large portion of churchgoers on Easter that actually think the story they're hearing on Easter is actually an idle tale. Because if it wasn't an idle tale, if it was a truth, they would want to know him more and more and more and their hearts would burn when they hear more about him. Before you may pat yourself on the back for coming to church and being here. It's also entirely possible that there are people that come to church once a year and they actually talk about Jesus more than the people that come every week of the year. I believe the elephant in the room is do you believe this story? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if you are, you're a witness. You are meant to have a heart that burns when you see Christ in the scriptures. And you're meant to be a witness to what Christ has done. I'm going to close with this poem that I ran across. called I think it's called Emmaus by a guy named Malcolm Gute. He expresses the transformation of the encounter in his poem about the two men on the road to Emmaus. 
It's coming from this perspective of Cleopas. And he says, and do you ask, he's talking about Jesus, do you ask what I'm speaking of? Although you know the whole tale of my heart, its longing and its loss, its hopeless love, you walk beside me now and take part and take my part as though a stranger, one who doesn't know the pit of disappointment, the despair, the jolts and shudders of my letting go, my aching for the one who isn't there. And you know my darkness from within. My cry of dereliction is your own. You bore the isolation of my sin alone, that I need never be alone. And now you reveal the meaning of my story, that I, who burn with shame, might blaze with glory. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we desperately need your Son to be central in our lives, for us to be able to see your Son in the Scriptures. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see more and more of Christ in your Word. And Lord, we need to we need your power. We, we praise you for giving us the promise of your Holy Spirit to help us be witnesses. And Lord, that even you prepare the way. And even this week, as we scatter and as we go to different places, the ball fields, restaurants, to work. God, you've already prepared the way. And you've prepared the way in the nations, Father, as we even go to the nations, Father. You've already prepared the way, and we're just witnesses, Father. Would you help us to burn that redemptive heartache, that burning, that heartburn, that others would want to, that others would know Christ. Father, make us faithful witnesses. We can even say, like the man who had the Son, he was hoping that Jesus would heal from the, uh, the demon possession when he said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I think a lot of us may be there, but Father, would you help us to believe in this and trust and press in on this? And God, help us, help our hearts to burn for more of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.